Um, let's get to the message today, okay? Yeah, right? Do you guys remember the first time you sinned? That's right, a good question, right? Maybe that's the first time you did something wrong in your life. I was trying to remember maybe the first thing that I did wrong, and I don't remember what it was, but I remember my punishment, um, right? I, I'm pretty sure whatever I did wrong had something to do with my mouth, because all I really remember is sitting in the bathroom holding a bar of soap in my mouth. And uh, it's sitting there thinking to that, it's probably why I correlate the taste of coconut to soap. Um, but I also remember that I didn't really learn my lesson. When I think back about my childhood memory bank, there was a lot of soap tasting. Um, and, you know, it did finally stop. But uh, not because I stopped being bad, but one time we were out of bars of soap, and my mom pumped liquid soap into my mouth. And um, let's just say I was like burping up bubbles for hours. Um, but my mouth got me in a lot of trouble as a child, if you haven't figured that out, um, which led me to probably be one of those kids that sometimes when people are like, he's got like anger issues or something. And um, really, I just had two little sisters who were really annoying. And um, they're starting to grow out of it now that they've hit 30. But uh, I, I remember one time throwing a, a set of keys that, that was uh, used to unlock our shed where my bike was and stuff at my sister for doing something. I can't remember what she did, but it, it, it made me angry enough to throw these keys at her. And uh, my dad was like, that, you know, that's not okay. And uh, he grounded me for my brand new bike. Um, and uh, then I had to write a report on my anger issues using scriptures. And, um, yeah, and now you're like, oh, that makes sense. That's why you write sermons. You know, it started at a young age. Um, you know, I wish I could say that that's when I stopped doing wrong things, right? The problem with sin or bad things in our lives is that it, it, it finds a sneaky way into our lives and often starts out in innocence until um, we're caught up in it, right? As a little kid, I didn't know the, the words I was saying was bad or that talking back was wrong. I, I was just doing what I saw or repeating what I said, like what, was, what I heard. But those actions start to train our brain to go in one direction, right? And even if it's the wrong direction, it's really hard for us to reset it. James chapter 1, 14 to 15 says, Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. One of the biggest struggles of sin in my life was pornography and lust. I remember as a kid, um, one of my best friends that lived a couple houses down from me, his dad had Playboy magazines around the house. And we knew that they weren't for us because we were kids, but um, it didn't really stop us from peeking in on them when we had a chance. But it really was junior high, probably sixth grade when it really started heavy for me. Um, and it started in innocence, as all things do. Uh, right? My parents had made a decision that they wanted to try and protect me, and they kept me out of the uh, sixth grade sexual education, you know, awkward videos that um, some of you guys watched. I actually have no idea if they were awkward or not. I sat in a hallway um, during that time. And, you know, after that, all my friends and all my peers, they were, they were talking about all these things, right? And I was like, oh, I don't know what these things are. And I, uh, you know, I'm pretty good at just uh, talking them through my teeth and acting like I knew what was happening. And uh, they were probably just laughing at me outside of that. But, you know, as life went on, those conversations got a little bit, you know, progressively more outside of what I knew. And I just became curious as, you know, a child. And now as a parent, I think back about like, why, why didn't I, 
why wouldn't a child just come to their parent and ask, like, hey, what, what are these things? But then I also think about, like, awkward junior high Andrew trying to process this. And, uh, like, first it's awkward to talk to your parents about this stuff, especially if it's never been a subject of conversation before. And uh, secondly, they showed me that this was something taboo, right? Like, we don't talk about these things. They, they kept me out of the class. I didn't want to rock the boat. And uh, that's when I took to the, the greatest thing ever invented at that time, dial-up internet. And uh, through Juno, I don't even know if you guys know what Juno is. Um, it's either because you're probably too young or you grew up privileged and you could afford AOL or MSN or something. Um, right? This was back when you had to pay for internet twice. I was like, trying to explain to someone that you used to have to like, pay for access to the internet, and then you had to pay for a program that let you get into the internet. And people were like, no, you're lying to me. And... Uh, Right? Now, I remember on one night in particular, for some reason, my whole family, we lived in a church parsonage across from the street from the church. And I remember my, for whatever reason, my whole family was over at church and I had stayed home. And uh, I'm pretty sure I planned it that way of some sort. And I, I opened up the internet browser and, uh, you know, after about 20 minutes, I finally connected. And I remember, I remember typing something into the search bar to lead me somewhere, something like, boobs and what's so great about them. Uh, you know, I, I don't really remember what the phrase was, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out what, what all these people are talking about. And what happened is I started to become educated on something that I didn't plan on being educated on. And from that point on, I felt basically hooked. You know, I, I was drawn from temptation into full-on sin, and it, that sin wasn't really hard to find, um, especially back in, like, the wild west of the Internet. Porn ads invaded. Every website popped up about every seven clicks, and uh, it found me way faster than I could ever find it. And I, I was caught by my parents a few times through uh, junior high, through high school. But pornography had become the drug that I used to cope with my depression. Right? I'd become addicted to that, the release of dopamine and like hooked in my sinful ways. Right? It invaded my thoughts. It invaded how I viewed the world. It invaded how I viewed relationships. But worst of all, it greatly affected my relationship with God. I was filled with shame. I really wanted to be a good Christian. I really loved God. I wanted to do all the things that he asked of me. And while I probably went too far physically in some relationships, I also set up boundaries because I wanted to do what God wanted for me. And because of my relationship with Jesus, yeah, I would go home and I would participate with others crossing those boundaries and filling my life with shame. I, mean, I remember probably within my junior year, I was leading our youth worship team, leading and playing on Sunday's worship team. I ran our youth Sunday school. I led a Bible study at my school. I started Bible college classes because I love God, but I also thought I needed to do all, things, all these things to make up for all of the wrong I was doing at the same time so that God would still love me. But all it really did was fill me with more shame make me feel more inadequate to be used by God. I can remember so many of my prayers, I even have some still recorded in a, a prayer journal I used at that time, of begging God to forgive me for understanding that I was depressed as a punishment for my sin, that God was forcing me to be depressed so that I would learn how to deal appropriately, telling God, I'm sorry for disappointing you, but I understand why you will never use me again making promises that I knew I'd never be able to keep, begging God to just free me from this. 
But that sin just kept creeping into my life. It, it, I thought that marriage and finally having sex was going to free me from my sin. But it ran deeper than some sexual thing. Right? And there I was still battling the same sin in my marriage, leading to a night that I was pretty sure Victoria was going to leave me. And so I barricaded our apartment door and slept in front of it. Fell asleep actually reading a book about how to battle pornography that I had bought years before, but I thought I could do it on my own. Confessing my sins to my wife, seeing a physical person that I cared so much about being destroyed by my sin, caused me to cycle deeper to a place I thought I would never recover from. Confession and the feelings of guilt and of shame that often precede it, you know, they get a little less cute as you grow up. Right? When I started this story, we're all laughing about me getting punished and eating soap. We're not really laughing now. When misguided actions of innocence mature into real marital issues and things that become really messy, when it starts to take a real battle to overcome it, this is where most of us live. And today we're going to talk about one of the greatest things that we can do to overcome that. I have much more victory in my life over this sin. The temptation is still very real, even more so in my darkest moments. Right? My brain, my physical brain still goes, do you remember how we used to cope with this? It was a lot easier. I'm still trying to learn better habits. My mouth definitely still gets me in trouble. But, <laughs> thanks. Um, but, but I've learned that I am not a sinner who struggles with Christianity. Right? But I am a Christian who sometimes struggles with sin, right? That I am a child of God who is loved by my father, but still has some growing to do. We're in our series, Prayer, an invitation to the wonder and the mystery of prayer. We're using Tyler Statton's book, Praying Like Monks and Living Like Fools as a guide through this series. And today's message is titled, Search Me and Know Me. Last week, we talked about the importance of the first line of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Right, that Jesus taught us to pray these words to be a reminder for us, to remember who God is, to remember who we are because of who God is, and to remember who we are to each other. That God is a good father, that we are his children, and that we are siblings to one another. Now, I share my struggle with you because I want you to know as we talk about sin today that I'm nowhere near perfect. Okay, and I'm sure most of you have already figured that out. Right, but I'm human with struggles like all of us. And I, I, I mean, I don't hope that you guys relate, but I assume that you guys can relate. Maybe same story, different struggle, maybe even same struggle. Now, one of the greatest things about prayer, at least for me and from other people that I know who have a vibrant prayer life, is the connection to God the time in his presence, experiencing who he is and just kind of letting it wash over you. But often we let sin get in the way. King David, who we've talked about multiple times, the the author of many of the Psalms, he's also known as this man after God's own heart from the Old Testament. And in Psalm 24, in the middle of these triumphant phrases about God, in verses three through six, he says, who may climb the mountain of the Lord? 
Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. Such people may seek you and worship in your presence, O God of Jacob. Jesus said something similar in the Beatitudes. If you remember when we went on through the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 8, Jesus said, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. David is someone we think of um, often as someone who had this great relationship with God, right? that he was incredibly close to God. I mean, he is known, like God gave him the title of the man after my own heart. Yet David's life was riddled with sin. Right? And not even just small sins. David was a liar. David was an adulterer. Depending on how you read it, he was possibly a rapist. And he was also a murderer. Right? When I think of the man after God's own heart, those are the first words that come to mind. Thank you. I was hoping you'd get that joke. Um, do you think that it was easy for David to say those words when he was writing that psalm? Right? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure. I bet his brain was like, that's not me. Those who don't worship or lie, I've li- I'm lying right now. I feel like writing this down. The ones who have a right relationship with God, man, I don't feel like I do everything right. But what I've come to know is that there must be something more to that word of pure and that word of clean. If David could be both all of those sins yet still be considered pure enough to be the man after God's own heart, to be the one who ascends the mountain of God and meets with him. But before we get to that, we need to first start with sin. Right now, sin is hugely controversial. Right, I want to be surprised if many of you cringed a little, and and maybe inside and, and probably outside a little bit when I said the word sin. Right, that little three letter word. That word's been abused, it's been manipulated over time. It's been used to try and control people. It's been minimized to a single, subjective, and often legitimate, painful experience in many of our lives. Now, the biblical idea of sin is not very simple. It's it's really broad. There's eight different Hebrew words for sin in the Old Testament. That makes the definition really broad and easier to understand more in the story form than in the state. And when we look at the Bible's opening pages, as we've been looking back to many of the issues that that Satan has tried to mix in and the lies he's put in our lives that keep us from prayer, we find creation. And at the, the end of creation, it reaches the pinnacle and God created humankind. And God looked over all he created and declared it good. Now, obviously, some things have happened between God declaring it good and us looking out at the world today and going, that's not so good. But when we look at the next part of the biblical narrative, which was called the fall, where sin plunges into human history. As we talked about last week, the sin the serpent wanted Adam and Eve to commit was not to eat the fruit, but it was to stop trusting that God knew best. And that's kind of the hang up with humankind, right? Is trusting in the God that we believe in, that what he says and what he does is actually what's best for us. This is what happens to Adam and Eve pretty early in the story. They started to believe God was holding out on that. 
right? And so they pluck the forbidden fruit and attempt to find full, abundant, happy life apart from God, to find it on their own. They trusted themselves, not the God they believed in. And this is what the Bible calls sin, right? A good desire channeled through the wrong means or any attempt to meet our deepest needs by our own resources. And that's why David sinned in all those things. If you look at the, what led David into every one of those sins, was that there was something empty and missing in his life and he went out to try and resolve it in his own power. And that's the very core of all of our struggles. One of the Greek words for sin is harmatano, which is defined as missing the mark, to err or to miss or even to wander off the path. Right? In general, it just means that you started heading in the wrong direction. And usually the direction that we head is to solve it on our own. Right? You ever watch, you know, especially for those who have kids or you have uh, nieces and nephews or children around you, you know, and they're like, I'm going to do this. And they head off and you're like, that, that's not even the, you just already headed off the wrong way. Right? You're holding the wrong tool. Or what, like, but they're like, I'm going to do this on my own. Right? It's very core to who we are as humans to go, I got this. Even if we immediately head off in the wrong direction. Now, sin in the biblical narration, it's not an accusation. It's not even a condemnation. It's just a diagnosis. Right? It's like going to the doctor's office where you start describing your symptoms of things you're going on and you discover there's a name for the disease that's causing issues in your life. Sin. It's just what it is. The trouble with disease is it gets in the way of doing what we were made to do. Right? Like live free, healthy lives and use our bodies according to their design. After Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit, in Genesis 3, it says that their eyes were open and they were made known of their nakedness. So they made clothes out of leaves to hide from each other. And then when God came down to walk with them that evening, as he did in every evening, they hid from him. God finds them because, I mean, God's like the universe's champion of hide and seek. And so God shows up to them and he goes, well, first he's walking, he knows where they're at, but he says, where are you? Because every other time God came down to the garden, Adam and Eve ran out from wherever they were at to be with God. But this time God shows up and they don't come to him. God asks, where are you? There's a long interpretive tradition in Judaism and into early Christianity that this first question that God asks after the first sin is an invitation for us to confess our sins. But that's the first thing God asks us when he wants to come and meet with us is just where are you? For you to talk about where you are at in life. Adam and Eve did not take God up on that offer. They stayed hiding. And so God found them and asked, who told you that you were naked? In other words, how did you get yourself into this mess? Eugene Peterson defines defines sin this way. Sin is a refused relationship with God that spills over into a wrong relationship with others. Sin is always personal, and it is always against God. The way our sin hurts other people is just collateral damage of the first refusal to just do what God has asked of us. 
right? David prays in Psalm 51.4, which Psalm 51 is a, a whole chapter of David confessing his sins and asking for forgiveness. And he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. That we do not sin against a rule. We do not sin against the laws. We sin against our father. Paul in Romans 7 describes his struggle with sin like this. In verse 21, he says, I have discovered this principle in life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from a life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Does that ever feel like you? Like, I know what's right, but inevitably I end up over here doing what's not so right. We know the problem. Right? We, the diagnosis is sin. We've missed the mark. We've, we've wandered off on a direction that is incorrect because we're trying to solve things on our own. And just as Paul told us, there's nothing that we can do in our own power to fix it. This disease is too powerful. And there's no man-made treatment that can cure it. But there is good news. right? They, they, you are loved. You are loved right now without qualification without restriction. Our Father in heaven loves you as a child right now, unconditionally, loved in a way that you cannot lose that love. And his love has found a way to to defeat sin through his son, Jesus Christ. The real issue is that we will probably find it very hard to believe and harder to experience it. Right? It's like we went to the doctors and, and they said, yo, your diagnosis is sin. Here's the cure. And we're like, I don't, just don't think that's going to work. I don't think that pill you're telling me to swallow every day is actually going to fix anything. Right? Or that cream or that ointment, that, that's not a realistic thing. But it is true. Our instinct, and our instinct is and will forever be to try and drum up our own lovableness, right? To become lovable in some way that we get to define and control, to try and become in our own eyes who we already are in God's eyes. To not trust in what God has done or what he says, but to try in our own power to earn it. You cannot cure yourself. I cannot cure myself. I can't even make a reason to to deserve the cure. The good news is called grace, though. It's not for you to deserve, but it is still given freely. You don't even have to send it to your health insurance. You didn't try and get this disease. You didn't set out in life to go get this. Some of you may seem to have this disease. You may feel that you have it worse than others. Some of you say, you know, it's really not all that bad. I think I can live with it. But sin in our lives becomes a block from us meeting with God. Right? But probably not in the way you've heard before or in the way that you may assume. Right? It's been long taught that God cannot be around sin. But that's very untrue. 
Right? Not only does Jesus show up around sinners his entire time on earth, but God's first action when sin was introduced to the world was to go be with the sinners. Right? He showed up in the garden and said, where are you? And then he found them in their hiding. Right? It's pretty much the opposite. That when we sin, God draws near to us, not runs away from us. The separation comes on our side. We, you know, I know full well, painfully and personally, what it feels like to all of a sudden be very aware of my need for forgiveness for all the sin that I've done. Right, falling on my face over and over, defeated because I've failed again. You know, while all the voices in my head, you know, start saying, you know, you're right. You don't deserve this. I'm not a man of clean hands or of pure heart. And the shame of our choices becomes so great that we start to do the very same thing that Adam and Eve did, that we hide from God. We hide ourselves. We hide what we've done. We cover the sin. We cover our shame. And we try to act like life is not different. But when we hide from God, that's what keeps us from him. When we try and hide our sin with fig leaves, that's what keeps us from him. And it's not that he's not pursuing us. He shows up just as he did for there. And he asks, where are you? And he seeks us out and says, how have you gotten yourself into this situation? Not because he's here to condemn or to judge, but because he wants us to confess and become clean. Shame is Satan's biggest tool in keeping us from God. Because shame causes us to hide. Shame keeps us down. Shame handcuffs us by making us believe that God can no longer use it. There's a story of a woman being publicly shamed because of her sin found in the Bible in John chapter 8. Jesus is in the temple courts and he's teaching a group of people like this, very much in this type of situation when a group of religious leaders show up with a woman who was caught in adultery, there's a good chance she was completely naked, maybe with a a bed sheet wrapped around her, and they, they throw her down right here in front of everybody. And they look at Jesus and they say, this woman was caught in sin. She was caught in adultery, and the law says that she deserves to be stoned to death. What do you say we do, Jesus? Jesus didn't even respond right away. It says he stooped down and he was drawing in the sand. It doesn't even say what he drew. I, he went back to it later. My assumption is that it was part of whatever lesson he was already teaching. So first off, Jesus is not even overwhelmed or concerned about our sin to where it takes him off of course of just doing what he's already out doing. But the religious, religious leaders, they weren't stepping down. They demanded that Jesus respond to them. And he said, all right, You're right, the law does say she deserves to be stoned. But let's start here. The person without any sin, they can cast the first stone. And of course, just like all of us here today, they slowly dropped the rocks in their hands, turned around and left, because nobody is without sin. Then in verse 10 of John chapter 8, it says, Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Then Jesus said, Neither do I 
go and sin no more. I want to point out something here about the intentions of God. As we read in Hebrews, it says, Jesus was without sin. Right? And so when Jesus said that the law demands that that woman be stoned for her sin and that the person without sin can cast the first stone, Jesus had every right to take that rock and begin to stone that woman. But Jesus chose grace. Right? People have painted God to be a judgmental being waiting to unleash his wrath on mankind because of their sin and give them what they deserve. But the reality is when God is given the chance, he will choose grace. Now, why does Jesus choose grace? Because he suffered through our very same temptations. In Hebrew 2.18, it says, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. And if we jump a couple chapters later to chapter 4, 14 through 16, the author says, so then, since we have this great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Jesus suffered through temptation. He understands our weaknesses. And the word when it says he understands our weaknesses, it actually translates to he co-suffers with us. But it's not just a past tense, he did long time ago suffer. But today, in the moment when you are in temptation, he suffers with you again. Right? But then what follows that is not an invitation to hide because of our sin, but instead to be bold and come before God's presence. Right? What a difference from how we feel from shame of wanting to hide to the reality of in our sin, we should still come boldly into the presence of God. And there we will find mercy and we will find grace. Right, Paul discovered this as well during, after he voiced his struggle of, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I keep messing up. At the end of Romans chapter seven, the next verse is the next chapter, chapter Romans eight, verses one and two. Paul says this, so there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Right? Condemnation is a partner in crime with shame. Right? What if every time we find ourselves face down in condemnation and shame, it's an opportunity to again hear God's voice say, neither do I condemn you. Right? What if the parts of our stories that we want to hide, that we want to erase, become in the end parts that we will tell forever because it tells the story of God's grace and his mercy? What if when you find yourself there is, an opportunity, is not an opportunity to clean yourself up, but instead to see yourself as you really are and as he has already always seen you and still hear him call you beloved? Right? God didn't lower his standard of holiness. He found a way to bring us up to a standard of holiness that is not dependent on our performance. And that is because grace wins. The scandalous grace of our great high priest, Jesus, 
is impossible to discover just in thought, in the abstract. It must come as close as a personal experience. Right? When insecurity, shame, and condemnation have you pinned on your back, and you're struggling to breathe, life looks like it's falling down all around you, and you're dealing with the consequences of your choices, Jesus is drawn to be with you, to feel the same sting, to suffer alongside, and then offer his healing presence. And to be there in your weakness. He shares in the pain. He takes on the condition, yet he chooses not to sin. And that is our hope, our only hope. That the one full of deepest empathy is equally full of healing power. And he is with us in our weakness always. So how do we become the one with clean hands and a pure heart? How do we take Jesus up on his power to heal in those moments It is through confession. Because confession is taking what is hidden and bringing it out into what is open. Confession takes us out of hiding. It's to lay bare all the things that we have done before God and confess that we need help, that we can't do it on our own, that in all of my efforts to do it on my own, I've actually failed and walked farther away from being with God who's already provided all of the solutions of my life. Eugene Peterson writes that God does not deal with sin by ridding our lives of it as if it were a germ, mice, or mice in the attic. God does not deal with sin by amputation as if it was some gangrene leg, leaving us crippled, holiness on a crutch. God deals with sin by forgiving us. And when he forgives us, there becomes more of us, not less. David discovered the healing power of forgiveness, and that's what allows him to mix confession with the rest of this victory song song in Psalm 24. Because God was not just powerful in physical battles, but God was powerful in David's own personal struggles. In Psalm 139.1, David says to God, you've examined my heart, and you know everything about me. David had openly invited the Spirit to search him, to dig through his life and uncover the part of his life and and uncover the sin that was found there. He even celebrated that process. He said, this is a great way that you have come and you've known me and found me. He even in Psalm 139 with a request to be even more open. Verse 23 and 24 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and leads me along the path of everlasting life. This is what it means when David said, clean hands and heart. Or even when Jesus in Matthew 5, 8 says, to be pure and clean and you will see God. It means to be not hidden. The word pure and clean, even into the the Hebrew and the Greek, is literally to mean to to be made open. It's the process of taking things that were hidden and making them known and visible to take all the compartments of your life and lay it bare before God. David became the man after God's own heart because he was constantly opening his heart and confessing. The Psalms he authored are peppered with personal confessions, honest and unfiltered and raw nakedness before God. He was a long way from perfect, as we all are, but David refused to hide. When he saw his nakedness, He didn't pick up fig leaves, but instead he ran to his father. And as we mature in Christ, there'll be the human tendency to believe that we should be confessing our sin less. 
But really the opposite becomes true. Because humans are very similar to parfaits and ogres. Do you know what that is? We have layers. Confession means making known what has been hidden. But what that does is usually pull back the first layer of an issue and we confess it to God, but it lays bare all of the things that are deeper, all the things that are the root causes of those same very sins. And every time we confess and we open ourselves up, it's usually just one layer and another layer and another layer. And those layers are more complex. And those layers are, are harder to work through. And so each one of those takes more time and more victory. A maturing community is not a church without sin, but a church without secrets. When we come in and out of God's presence in gathered communities with our deepest needs and secrets hidden, we're essentially saying Jesus' victory is not enough. It's not enough for me. It's not enough for this issue in my life. I just need more time and I'll sort this out on my own. Confession is how we disrupt our internal from the beginning of time struggle to want to solve it on our own and our own power. We say we believe in grace, but confession is how we actually trust what we already believe in. Brendan Manning wrote, anyone God uses significantly is always deeply wounded. We are, each and every one of us, insignificant people whom God called and graced to use in a significant way. On the last day, Jesus will look us over, not for medals or diplomas or honors, but for scars. It's not our gifts, insights, ideas, or qualifications that God is determined to heal the world, but by our scars. By his wounds, we are healed. And by our wounds, our healing is shared. Confession leads us into all that God has for us. Proverbs 28, 13 says, people who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, if we claim to have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and we are not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, get that, the, the clean, the pure that we need from all of our wickedness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Acts 3.19 says, Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. Guys, it's time to come clean before God, to stop hiding, to lay it all before God and really experience mercy, refreshment, and the presence of God. Now, sometimes I believe that there are often spiritual actions that we are asked to make, but making a physical action is what really gets us there because we are still physical beings. In James 5, 16, it says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Right? I believe that confessing our sins to God is all that is needed. But sometimes it takes confessing things to one another for the healing to really take place because it, it really gets us out of hiding. 
right? Sometimes it's easy to say we've confessed to God, but then still keep it hidden. But when you lay it bare to another person, it's pretty hard to keep it hidden. I really started to have victory over pornography and lust when I had a group of other guys with the same struggle that we met on a weekly basis and laid bare where we struggled that week, where we sinned and where we had fallen short, and then prayed for each other, kept each other accountable, and encouraged each other along the way. And that led us to experience healing in those issues. Now, today's practical application is confession. This is, a, is known for, for many, many, many years as the practice of searching and naming. As David prayed in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out in me anything that offends you. So we first basically pray that prayer. Right? We make space for self-examination with the Holy Spirit guiding us. And then confession is as simple as it sounds from there. Taking what comes up in those moments of self-examination with the Spirit and naming it before God. I'm sorry for whatever it was. And when we name it to God, it brings it into the light. Right? We uncover it from the hidden place, which weakens that power of sin and of shame. And it calls upon God's power of grace and of healing and freedom. Right? And I want to challenge you to be very specific. Right? We have a tendency of keeping things generic. Right? It's why when somebody asks how you're doing, you're like, I'm good. Because like, you know, I could probably convince myself I'm good. Right? There's, there's enough good going on that I could say I'm good. I'm not lying, but I'm not being very specific. Right? And we do that exact same thing when it comes to trying to reveal the things that are hidden in us because we still kind of want to keep our pride intact. Right? It'd be like going to the doctor and expecting him to fix something that's going on with you by just saying, my body doesn't feel right. Tell me what's wrong. And it's even more so important when we confess to one another. Jesus made this a part of the Lord's Prayer, something that we were you know, commanded his disciples to have in their, include in their prayers daily. Forgive us of our sins and lead us not into temptation. Right? He said it generic because he was covering all these people. But for you and your daily prayers, you should forgive of the specific sins and keep me from the temptation that draws me there every time and name the specifics. Right? Make this a daily part of your day, naming the struggles you have with sin and then going boldly before God's throne and finding his free grace and mercy. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to put on some appropriate quiet music and spend some time searching and naming.